0: Well, if you will, turn with me to the book of Genesis, just read a short passage from chapter 1. We will look at this text briefly tonight. We will look at some passages in Genesis 6 to 9 about the Noahic Covenant. We'll just begin our time this evening by reading together from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 down to 28. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's go again to the Lord. Well, Father, again, we come to you and we simply ask this evening that you would begin to give us understanding of your word, understanding how it all fits together, how a great story of redemption is unfolding on its pages, and through its pages, we are given insight into what is happening in the world. So Lord, I pray for our study this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. All right, well, as I said, we are beginning a new evening study. We had been, of course, going through the book of Numbers. We got about halfway through that. We'll take a break from the book of Numbers for a period of time, and we're just going to look at, now, how to read the Bible. We're going to look at things like how to understand the covenants. How to? We'll begin looking at that tonight, how the covenants... In Scripture, all fit together. We'll look at how you read narratives in the Bible, how you read poetry, how you read the prophets and apocalyptic literature, the epistles, the gospels. We'll look at the subject of typology and how these patterns throughout Scripture are occurring and reoccurring and ultimately finding their fulfillment in Christ. We'll spend Probably several weeks, perhaps even through the rest of this semester into November, looking at these various subjects. Um, And then the plan is probably after that, we'll have a fairly short study on eschatology, the different views of the millennium. That's always a fun topic to look at. And, uh, and then we will, we will resume back in the book of Numbers, so that'll probably be sometime early, uh, early next year. So we are beginning, as I said, with this, this study on how to read the Bible, and our focus tonight is going to be on understanding the covenants. But before we get into that, I, I want to just sort of lay some some foundations, right some some definitions, there are things that we, we have to understand rightly, some terms, some concepts that we need to get right when we are approaching uh, the Bible and are aiming to interpret it correctly. And, and, and three of these has to do with meaning and understanding and inspiration. When when we read Scripture, we want to understand what the meaning of the text is. We want to have a proper understanding of the text. And within all of this, we have to start with the biblical assumption that all of Scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired. So we are not approaching the text in some neutral fashion that doesn't actually exist. That's just an atheistic approach to Scripture. We're not approaching the text with some critical mind trying to discern where contradictions are. No, a distinct Christian interpretation of the Bible begins with its starting point, what the Bible says of itself. Namely, that it is breathed out by God. And because of that, there is a consistency to the Word of God all throughout. So if we... If we think that there is a particular contradiction, it's not the case that the contradiction exists. What is the case is that we have not understood the text correctly. So Those are starting assumptions, and I want to just sort of unpack those uh, together as we begin uh, our time. So so one thing I want to consider is just the the, the meaning of meaning. Uh, we, We are again, attempting in our reading of the Bible to understand the meaning of the text. And when we are talking about the meaning of the text, what we are talking about is seeking to discover the author's intent. That's lowercase a, author, and uppercase a, author. We'll look at this when we get to the concept of divine inspiration, but the Bible is both a human and divine book. And when we say that, sometimes people take that to mean that because it's human, it can err. No, no. That's not what that means. What it means is that there is going to be uh, human characteristics that come out of it. Human personality, in other words. So, just an easy example. When you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, they read very differently from the letters of John. They have different language that they use. They, They have different sort of concepts that they, that they like to speak of regularly. John loves the imagery of light and darkness, right? That permeates his gospel, permeates his, his letters. Paul writes in a, in a very, uh, if, you, if you will, a, a logical manner. Not to say John has no, no logic, but he's, he's constantly making these very precise arguments, right? They read differently. Matthew's Gospel reads differently from John's Gospel. That's the the human personalities that are are coming out of that. So it's both a human and a divine book. And when we are reading Scripture, we want to discover the author's intent. And when we are talking about the author, of course, we're talking about, if we're in the book of Genesis, the author Moses. And, And if we are discovering what Moses' intention was in writing the book of Genesis, at the same time, we will be understanding what God's intention was. Because in the inspiration of Scripture, God moves these human authors to write exactly what he wants them to write. Now, having said that, that, that excludes several errors when it comes to meaning. So, Meaning is not everything that comes to our mind when we're reading the text. If you're reading through the Psalms, if you're reading through the book of Genesis, and you get some idea, some thought in your mind, something that strikes you, that that may be a thought that is worth investigating. That may be a thought that is leading you to repentance. You can have a variety of different thoughts as you're reading through Scripture, and sometimes in our, in our own sinfulness, right, you can be reading through Scripture and not actually even be thinking about Scripture, right? And we don't want to baptize all of our thoughts with divine inspiration. Right? So, so meaning, discovering the meaning of the text does not mean that whatever thought comes to your mind initially is what the meaning of the text is and that God has just inspired your thoughts as you're reading. Meaning is also not how we feel about what's in the text. Though that that is important, I do want to say that the Bible has passion, that there's emotion in it. I know at Bethany, right, you've been going through the Psalms. Uh, there is no reading through the Psalms without seeing deep emotion. David crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoted by Jesus himself. That's deep emotion. There's lament there. So there is certainly a place for our emotions to be shaped by the text. But the feelings we have are not necessarily or inherently the meaning of the text. We can have emotions, we can have feelings about the text that deviate from the text. Meaning is also not how we apply a text. Application is and should be derived from the meaning of a text, but the application is not what the text means. So for example... This morning we were in uh, the book of Zephaniah. And one of the applications that I tried to bring out this morning from the text was the fact that we cannot serve two masters. We can't serve two gods. We can't worship the Lord and Baal. And in our context especially, we cannot worship the Lord and money. We can't serve two masters. That's an application from the text, but it's not the meaning of the text. When we were in Zephaniah, what we saw was Zephaniah and and God through Zephaniah bringing judgment against the people of Judah and Jerusalem for their syncretistic worship. That's what Zephaniah is speaking to directly. Those are the people he's writing to directly. Those of Judah and and, and the city of Jerusalem in his day. And he's speaking to a very historical situation of Baal worship along with the worship of the Lord. That's the meaning of the text. That's what Zephaniah intends. And then we can derive our application from that meaning. What's being judged is is, in a broad sense, syncretistic worship. Now we can think, what's the syncretism we have to deal with? What's our Baal worship? So application should be related to the meaning of the text, but the meaning of the text is still different from the application. When we are discovering the meaning of the text, what we want to do is to discover the author's original historical intent And everything else is derived from that. Now, another thing has to do with understanding. And understanding comes when we are able to accurately construe an author's words in keeping with their meaning. I have understanding, or or I've understood what someone has written or said when I can communicate their message back to them and they can agree that I've accurately represented them. Then I've understood what they have actually said. If I communicate something that is foreign to the author, then I clearly have not understood the text. So, for example, when we were flying back from Malawi, we got into a gospel conversation with a Jehovah's Witness. And that Jehovah's Witness was arguing that Jesus was the first creation of God. He is not eternal. He is not equal with God. He may be divine. He may have a divine nature, something that God has granted to him, but he's less than God. And one of the reasons that the Jehovah's Witness that we talk to, and many Jehovah's Witnesses, if not all of them, argue this is based on Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where Paul says of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And the argument is what that means is that Jesus was the first of God's created works. That's what it means by firstborn. You have a firstborn son, that means you've, you know, the husband and wife have come together and and you've you've made someone. That's what Jesus is here. He's he's made. Now, if if you isolate that phrase from the rest of its context, that might sound plausible. The question is, as we're trying to understand the text properly, is that what Paul meant? If if the Jehovah's Witness says, Paul, when you say firstborn of all creation, that means that Jesus was made by God. Is Paul going to agree with that? And the answer is no. We can see that all throughout the rest of his letters, but if you just read carefully in the very context, you can see the same thing. Firstborn does not in any way mean created. The idea of the word here has to do with preeminence and supremacy. And as the text unfolds, you actually see that being defined even more clearly. So in verse 15 again, he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, and then he explains, verse 16, for... Because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That very much excludes Jesus from being a created one. Because all things, whether visible or invisible, Were created through him. But even further, as the text continues, Paul says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, if firstborn means created, how do you make sense of that same phrase? The same word is used there. Firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead. If that is a term that is describing some creative work of God, what does that even mean? He's the first created being from the dead? No, that's not what that means. Paul describes what that means in the very next phrase, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's supreme. That's what the language of firstborn is getting at So this is just an example, right? You can make a claim. You can think that you have understood the word correctly or Paul's ideas correctly if you isolate phrases from their context. But the question is, if you were to repeat that definition back to the author, in this case Paul, would he agree? And the answer is no. So when we are trying to understand a text, we want to understand it as the author intended. When we read the book of Genesis written by Moses, we want to be able to go to heaven one day and have a conversation with Moses and say, Moses, did I understand that correctly? And Moses would say, yes, exactly. Third concept is of inspiration. Inspiration is the work of God by the Spirit where he uses the human instrumentality of prophets and apostles to communicate his truth to the world. God uses human beings, apostles, prophets, with their personalities, with their particular affinities for certain words, certain grammar, certain ways of structuring a text, he uses these authors to communicate exactly what he once said. Now, with this understanding of inspiration, there are are two errors that inspiration helps to avoid uh, making. One is over-spiritualizing the Bible. And what I mean by this is the approach to Scripture where somebody rightly understands that this is the Word of God. That this is God speaking to His people. But then they sort of mysticize the Bible. And they come to the text and they, they, they read a verse, they read... A passage, and they're immediately thinking, what is God saying to me? It should not be the first question, because these are human authors. The first question is, what did the author mean? And when you have properly understood what the author meant, then you can move to the point of application. Now, what does this mean for me? What is God calling me to in this very text? So if you understand that the Bible has a very human aspect to it, you can avoid the error of over-spiritualizing the Bible, where in extreme cases you just open the Bible, close your eyes, point to a text, and what is God saying to me? The other error is the belief that the Bible has nothing to say to me because it's 2,000 years old plus. If you were to only approach the Bible as a human book, as you would any other book, that might be a reasonable conclusion. What what, what does the the history of the Greeks by Herodotus, what, what does that mean? It's irrelevant. There may be some historical fascination to it, but it's just a human book. But because this is God's word, it does not matter that it was written 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. God is continuing to speak to his people through his word. So This understanding that the Bible is the word of God and inspired through apostles and prophets, that it is both human and divine, helps us to avoid these errors and brings us to have a proper assumption we bring to the text so that we can understand it how it was intended to be understood. So this is just a a few things that, these are assumptions that that I want to bring that I think we, we need to have whenever we are approaching any text of scripture. For the rest of our time tonight, I want to focus on understanding the story of the Bible. One of the keys to interpreting any passage of Scripture correctly is understanding what point in the story you're in. Whenever you're reading any kind of book, it is good to know what it is about. There's uh, an author named Mortimer Adler which, uh, who, who wrote a book called How to Read a Book, which I always find a, a funny title, because it assumes that you know how to read a book before you read his book, How to Read a Book. But he has a book called How to Read a Book, and he talks about all of these different ways of, of reading books, reading them for research purposes, reading them for leisure and enjoyment, And one of the things that he recommends, especially if you're wanting to to sift through which books you're going to read and which ones you're not going to read, is he recommends reading introductions and conclusions of the book. The Introduction usually tells you what it's going to be about, the conclusion summarizes everything, and then a lot of times in books along the way you'll have chapters with subtitles and short descriptions of what each chapter is about and you can sort of make your way through the skeleton of the book very quickly and understand what this book is going to be about Well the Bible is very much like this in that it clearly has a beginning, it clearly has an end. We're told what its beginning is in Genesis 1:1 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That starts the whole storyline of Scripture, the whole story of the world. And we know exactly where everything is going when we get to the book of Revelation. The garden is lost in the beginning, we get to the end of Revelation, and the garden is back. Only it's even better. The covenants throughout Scripture, you could think of them as... Basically, the major plot lines of Scripture. Peter Gentry, in his book, Kingdom Through Covenant, describes the covenants throughout Scripture as the plot lines throughout throughout the Bible's story. Whenever you're reading through a story, right, there's there's sort of major turning points all throughout a a good story. And and the Bible, similarly, has these, these key events, that everything points back to or points forward to. Everything is oriented around these plot lines, and these plot lines are oriented around the covenants in Scripture. The covenants are central to the unfolding story of redemption. And so we want to understand what the covenants are about, what they're saying, and what God is doing in the world Through them. So I want to begin by looking first at really the first two covenants in Scripture. But we're going to begin with what is technically the second covenant. This is the Noahic covenant. The very first mention of the word covenant in the Bible is in the Noahic covenant. We can find this in uh, Genesis chapter 6 and uh, verses 17 to 18. I want to read this text together. So God says here, after describing the wickedness of the world, we'll, we'll look at this in just a second, just a little brief context. That the world is, is wicked, it's about to be destroyed. God says... To Noah, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So this is the very first mention of the word covenant, and of course, in the context, what we see in the world is that it has become very quickly completely corrupt. We saw this this morning in, in Sunday school how how the, all of the thoughts, all of the intentions of of men in in, in their heart is it, it's only evil continually. Like, things are terrible. There's no one who's righteous in the world except for one man, Noah. There's bloodshed. There's sexual perversity. And God says to Noah, He's going to destroy everything. He's going to judge the world. But in the midst of this judgment, God tells Noah that He's going to establish His covenant with him. Now, this this particular word here, I'm going to establish my covenant with him, or, or God's covenant with him. This is a very important word in understanding what's going on, not only in this covenant made with Noah, but even with what preceded. In the Bible, whenever the language of covenant is used, it's Very consistently used in two ways. First, you have the language of what we might call covenant initiation. Some sort of new covenant is being made that did not exist before. And whenever the expression is found, I will make a covenant with you. At least that's how the the ESV puts it. Whenever this phrase is used, it generally refers to a brand new covenant being made. And and very very literally, if we're going with the, the Hebrew words that are used here, that are they're often translated, I will make a covenant with you, it's, it's I'll cut a covenant. The word is karat. I will cut a covenant with you. And when when anyone, when God or anyone else is talking about, making a new covenant, they will say, I am cutting a covenant with you. Now, now where does this idea come from? Cutting a covenant. Well, it comes from the actual process of making a covenant sealed by blood between two parties. What you would do in the ancient Near East, not, not just in the Bible, but generally making a covenant with, with anyone in the ancient Near East, is you would, you would usually take some sort of animal and you would cut that animal in half like as a sacrifice. And you'd spread the blood out on the ground and the two parts of the animal. Like you'd just cut this animal. You'd separate the parts of the animal and then the parties who were entering into this covenant together, would walk through the cut pieces of the animal. And as you were doing that, you were basically enacting a curse upon yourself. You were saying publicly and to the party you're entering into the covenant with, may what has happened to this animal happen to me if I break the terms of the covenant. That's what happens when you're cutting or making a new covenant. You are swearing that you are going to keep the terms of the covenant, and if you do not, you are calling the death penalty down upon yourself. That's where the language of cutting a covenant comes from. And we actually see this in Genesis chapter 15. In uh, verses 8 to 11 in particular, when when God is entering into a covenant with Abraham. Beginning in verse 8 and down to 11, we read, but but Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Wondering about these these promises and the land that the Lord has, has promised to give him. And the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Right? So you see the process being worked out here. Abram cuts these animals in half. But then notice what happens in Genesis 15, verses 17 to 18. Abram goes into a deep sleep and says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. There's only one person who walks through these cut animals. It's God himself in the form of a flaming torch, fire. Whenever you see God's presence, it's always this burning fire. It's God himself who walks through the covenant swearing that he is going to keep the terms of the covenant. He will give the land as a possession to Abram, and it doesn't depend on Abram. because Abram's asleep at this point. But you see this, this covenant-making process at work here in Genesis 15 specifically. And whenever a new covenant is made with someone, this is the language that would be used. You cut or make a covenant with them. So that's one idea tied to covenants. The other is the language of what we might call covenant affirmation, or covenant establishment. Whenever the expression, I will establish my covenant with you, is used, the speaker is saying that a previous covenant is being reaffirmed or established in some way. A, a different word is used there. It's, it's the word kum instead of the word karat. It's to establish something. And you can see this in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7 and verse 19. You can see this language used here. In Genesis 17, we're still talking, the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, is is, is worked out in different phases in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. And one of the places which we see this is Genesis 17, verse 7, and verse 19. So let's look at Genesis 17, verse 7. God says there, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That the Lord is saying to Abraham, I'm going to keep my covenant promises with you, the covenant which has already been made. It's going to be established by me. I'm going to affirm it. You see it again in verse... 19, the same language used. Uh, God says there, when uh, 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 Abraham's wondering, uh, how are these promises going to come through? It says, verse 19, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. He's going to establish with Isaac covenant that he made with Abraham. so, So with Isaac, a new covenant's not being made. It's the same covenant that was made with Abraham that's now reaffirmed. And the language that's used reflects that. God is establishing this covenant. Now, why is this important? It's important because when God speaks of the covenant with Noah, he does not say that he's going to cut a covenant with Noah. He does not say he's making a covenant with Noah, using that language of cutting. He says, I will establish my covenant with you, which tells us that there was actually a covenant made before Noah. Let's say that again. The first occurrence of the word covenant comes in Genesis 6, but the language that is used is telling us a prior covenant had been made that is now being established. What's going on in Genesis 6-9 to is an establishment of a previous covenant, and that covenant was actually made at creation. And, and we'll look at that more in just a moment. So, so what is the covenant with Noah doing. What is this covenant that God is establishing with Noah doing? What is it about? Well, it's essentially reestablishing what God did at creation with a couple of differences. Through Noah and his family, God is starting over with the world. He's making a a kind of new creation. In fact, the, the, the very way that the story of, of Noah and the flood is told, it's, it intentionally draws our minds back to what happened at creation so that we see, kind of as, as we saw this morning in Zephaniah, creation's going backwards. There's a reversal in this judgment. And there's all kinds of parallels between. Noah and the flood from Genesis 6 to 9 in the story of creation. I'll just point some of these out to you briefly. So in Genesis chapter 1, if you want to turn with me there for a moment, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, God begins to form the earth out of a formless and void earth that is covered with water. So he, he's created it, but he's created it. First of all, it's formless and void. It's uninhabitable. And then in Genesis 8... God begins to form a new world out of a world that's covered in water. That's what happened at the flood. The whole surface of the world is now covered in water, and again, God is remaking the world out of this water. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 also says that the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. And if you turn to Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, Moses tells us there that God made a wind, a ruach. It's the same word as spirit. It's an interchangeable term that means spirit or wind. God makes a ruach blow over the earth and the waters subside just like what you see in creation. It's the Spirit of God that is hovering over the waters and then the world begins to be formed. Again, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 9, God gathers the waters together and the dry land appears. And then, in verse 11, the land brings forth vegetation. And then if you flip over to Genesis chapter 8, verse 5, the waters are receding and the dry land appears. The the mountains are appearing. And and the same language for for appearing is is used here. The the, the word for seeing, ra'ah, is used here and, and in Genesis 1. And then the vegetation appears, we see, when the dove brings back an olive leaf not only does the story teach us that a new creation begins with some of these parallels, and there are, there are many more, but it also presents Noah as a new Adam. He's a new representative for mankind in a very similar way as Adam was in the beginning. So, so, so look with me in Genesis chapter 9. I want to look at verses 1 to 7. I'm going to read this text together. It says there, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the uh, the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image." And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. There are all kinds of parallels here in these seven verses with what we see in the early chapters of Genesis. the creation account, the creation of Adam, the man and the woman made in the image of God, you you find in, in both accounts this command to be fruitful and multiply. In both accounts, the man is given dominion over fish over birds, over animals though now they they have a fear right that there's a changed relationship with them as a result of, of the fall and sin in the world but he still has dominion. You find in both accounts that food is given to all of mankind only now again because of The fall, animals are included as food. You find in both accounts the fact that God made man in his image. Even in the way that the accounts are structured, it's set up as a parallel. In the early chapters of Genesis, this is a narrative account, and then, boom, you have a a short little section of poetry where God makes man in his image. And then what happens in Genesis 9, right? You've you've got all this narrative of the destruction of the world, the recreation of the world. And then in verse 6, boom, a short little section of poetry. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Even the very structure is intentionally parallel. So here's the idea. The covenant with Noah establishes the relationship between God and man, and between man and creation. As long as creation continues, man will have dominion on the earth. He will multiply. There will be times of sowing and harvesting. Man will be obligated to God. He will be responsible for carrying out justice and reflecting the image of God. It's the basic idea of this covenant that is made with Noah and creation. It's also very similar, then, to what we find in the early chapters of Genesis where the covenant was first made. Now, some object to understanding that there is a covenant with creation in the early chapters of Genesis, and the objection is because the word covenant is not found. With with all due respect, that's a, that's a weak argument. And, and this is the reason why. In 2 Samuel 7, God clearly makes a covenant with David there. Does he not? We read that explicitly. Okay? However, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the word covenant is never found. Where it is found, is in Psalm 89, verse 3, where the psalmist says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. So if you read the narrative of 2 Samuel 7, you see that God is making promises to David. He's giving warnings to David. He's entering into some sort of relationship with David but the language of covenant is never explicitly found, and yet Psalm 89 explicitly identifies what happened there as God making a covenant with David. So just because the word covenant is not found in the early chapters of Genesis does not mean that a covenant is not being made. Additionally, in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, the word covenant actually is found. And this is in relation explicitly uh, to Adam. So if you look at uh, Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7, the text there, I'll read, I'll just start in verse 4 just to give a little context. But the key text is verse 7. It says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away, right? Fickle people. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Key text, verse 7 But like Adam they transgress the covenant. Like Adam. So here God is announcing a judgment against Israel and Judah and he says, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant and dealt faithlessly with him. So, so Hosea is clearly understanding a covenant being made in these early chapters of Genesis. The question, though, is what is the covenant with creation? Well, if we understand Covenant that's made with with Noah, as well as the things that are going on in these early chapters, we can can identify the features of this covenant. Like the covenant with Noah, it is the relationship that is created between God and man, and man and creation. So, when it comes to the the relationship between God and man, the, the key text here is the fact that God makes man in his image. And by virtue of him being made in his image, he is now commissioned to be a co-ruler with God. So I want you to look again at Genesis chapter 1. And verse 26 specifically. Notice here what it says. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then what what, what comes next, this, this word that comes next, and, makes it seem like these are two disjunctive ideas. They're not necessarily related. But the grammar in the original makes them related. You could actually translate this as a purpose clause. So we could read it as, let us make man in our image after our likeness so that he may have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth. In other words, when God makes man in his image, it is for the purpose of him carrying out The rule of God in the world. That's what allows him to have dominion in the world, is that God makes him in his image. He he gives man this unique relationship with himself in his very own nature that no other creature has. He is an image bearer of God, which then allows him to subdue the earth, and to rule over it as God rules over the world. So one of the features of of this creation covenant is this relationship that God and man have towards one another and the relationship that is carried out, secondly, on creation, which is what I just alluded to. The second feature of this covenant, a second primary feature is man's dominion over creation. Creation is made to be fruitful for man it's not originally made that it would bear thorns and thistles, right? It, it, would, it would bear fruit. It would be blessed. And then you find stipulations in this covenant as well, in this, 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 uh, this creation. God gives a stipulation to the man, you can have, you can have all the trees. You can eat of everything. But one tree, you can't have. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And when that command is broken, a curse of the covenant comes upon the world. Now, There's more things that we could point out here, but essentially the idea is that the features of all the covenants that you find in Scripture are found in Genesis 1-3. to And so then what happens when you come to the covenant that's made with Noah is that God is reestablishing that covenant that was made in the beginning of creation now through Noah and his line. Only there's going to be some differences now in light of the fall. So God makes a covenant with creation. He establishes proper order and relationships. Man then falls. Judgment then comes. Creation Uh, The creation covenant is then reestablished with Noah again, only now it is in light of the fall. These are your first two covenants that tell us about the situation in the world and and our responsibilities in the world and to God. And the covenants that follow, as we'll we'll see when when we get to them, are going to build... On these two original covenants, develop them, and in many ways, come back to them, to reestablish them, and to make them even better when you get to the end uh, of of the Bible in the book of Revelation. So that's all all we're going to look at tonight, these first two covenants, the covenant with creation, the covenant with Noah, and then uh, next week when we get together again, we're going to look at the next covenant, which is the Abrahamic covenant where God is now going to get even more specific with how he's going to carry out his promises to redeem the world through a very specific family. If we understand how these covenants work together, then it can, it can be very helpful in understanding what is going on throughout all of Scripture. And, and, and as we'll see when we get to the prophets, when we, when we read through the prophets, one of the things that is helpful to understand is that the, that the prophets were by and large covenant enforcers. Much of their judgments that they were pronounced were judgments that were related to the curses of the law made in the Old Covenant. But we'll get to that when we, uh, when we get to it. So let me, uh, let me stop there. I'll close this with prayer, and then if you have any questions, we, we can do that, okay? Well, Father, you are the grand author of all creation. And history is working itself out through your promises, through your warnings, and it is ultimately moving to the direction of the climactic conclusion of the return of Christ and the establishment of righteousness through his kingdom forever. Father, we're grateful that we can open up the pages of your word and we can see the beginning and the end. And know where the story is going and where we fit in the story. So that when things seem to be very difficult for us in the world, we can have hope. We can know what is coming on the horizon. And so, Lord, we thank you for the hope that you've given to us in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. right. Any questions?